Hello and welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I am your host, Heather Evans, and today we are discussing school boards and critical race theory. I'm joined today by three guests. First, we will be talking with Brandi Hurley, who is a 3L law student at the Appalachian School of Law and a mother of three kids in public school here in southwestern Virginia. We are also joined by Jonathan Collins, who is an assistant professor of education, political science, and international and public affairs at Brown University. His research examines how democratic processes can improve the educational experiences of students from low-income and minoritized communities. And finally, our third and final guest is Adam Latz, who is a historian of education at SUNY Binghamton. He studies the history of school culture wars. His publications include books such as The Other School Reformers by Harvard University Press and Fundamentalist You by Oxford University Press. So let me begin by thanking all three guests for being on our program today. So Brandy, uh, my first question is actually for you. As you've probably noticed locally and nationally, this fall school board meetings have been well, something to behold. <laughs> um, what are we seeing locally here heading into the fall? Thank you, Heather, and thank you for having me on. Um, <clears throat> so earlier in the year, the Virginia General Assembly passed resolutions to train teachers on cultural competency so they can partake in culturally responsive teaching. Culturally responsive teaching just bridges the learning to a wide variety of students' cultures, and it's actually completely different than critical race theory but some people didn't see that way and they marched on the public school boards. All of the school boards considered critical race theory while they were um, considering the transgender issues that popped up from the model policies over the summer. Um, and all of the school boards locally have either said that they're just not teaching um, critical race theory because it was not part of the Virginia Department of Education's plan or they've put outright bans on teaching critical race theory in their counties. Now, you have children in public school here in Virginia, and, and so you have some experience kind of hearing your children talk about what they're learning at school. Are your children learning about so-called critical race theory, or, or how are they being exposed to issues involving systemic racism at the school? Are they, or, or are they not? Um, my children are very young. My oldest is nine, so she's just in the fourth grade. And um, at least in, in my experience at Belfast and Russell County Schools, my children are not learning anything um, in specific about race. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're learning their history, um, just as other people would recognize it. But um, critical race theories have not come across um, any of our paperwork, any of our school books. Um, we pretty much taught our kids from home last year with all the virtual learning, and we didn't see anything um, that was even remotely related to critical race theory. So I was just as surprised as everybody else when it popped up. Yeah, it does seem like schools are dealing with a lot right now. First, there's the COVID-19 pandemic and the contagious Delta variant. They also, you know, just that alone means they need to create a safe environment for their students. Then there's education gaps. You mentioned teaching your children from home. There's a lost year of learning. It seems like they're all engulfed in partisan battles, school culture wars, and it's becoming a flashpoint for conservatives. Now, I did want to ask you, Brandy, a little bit about organizations that might be contributing to what we're seeing at school board meetings. Are there national organizations or local organizations that are contributing to those conversations? 
On the critical race theory front, I haven't seen any national organizations that have gotten involved in that battle. Um, there have been some that got into the transgender issue, but um, on the critical race theory aspect, it's mostly just local gossip rags. Um, our local Patriot page posted a lot of um, standard propaganda against critical race theory, um, trying to scare people into homeschooling their kids or they're going to learn the critical race theory and, and that kind of thing. Um, and it's it, it's been pretty wild to read these posts um, and what they think that critical race theory is. Okay, so Jonathan, a lot of people here have been using the term critical race theory at these meetings. Honestly, they're using that term here. They're using that term everywhere, mm -hmm. but I'm not really sure they know what that means. And to be quite frank with you, I'm not sure members of Congress even know what that term means. <laughs> um, what is critical race theory? Well, you know, so critical race theory is this line of thought that is actually sort of a derivative of uh, critical legal theory. And so in the 60s, 70s, uh, some legal scholars were looking at what was happening during that period of time. And um, you had the, you know, the, the Vietnam War and a lot of the resistance to the war in particular, you had the civil rights movement happening, and then the advancement of women's rights is also happening. Uh, and, and plus labor rights movements um, it, happening as well. And then some kind of very early burgeoning LGBTQ um, activism is happening. But legal scholars are kind of looking at this landscape and then they're sort of re-examining the law. And they're saying, look, when you look at the structure of certain laws, the, the way in which we've designed laws, these have created some of the inherent biases that we see in our society. So, you know, this is the mid 20th century and, you know, Lyndon Johnson is putting forward this idea of the great society and we're taking, you know, inequality very seriously. And so, you know, from a critical legal theory perspective, you know, inequality is a function of the extent to which laws are enabling it to persist. And so critical race theory is again, kind of a derivative and offshoot of that, where some legal scholars got together and they said, well, we want to look at ways in which uh, we're, we're going to identify these ways in which um, the structure of laws are actually what is sort of furthering um, not just racism, but like actual outcomes and disparities that we see um, across racial and ethnic groups. So, I mean, people are coming to these school boards all riled up and using this term, but it sounds mm -hmm. like this is something that's taught at a much higher level than, than at public schools. Is that a correct assessment? That's right. I mean, this is a very, th this is a, a sort of a, a subset of what's taught at, a, at some of your most advanced law schools in the country. Um, you know, this is not um, any kind of national uniform curriculum. You know, I know it gets connected to um, the 1619 Project, which has this critical element to it. But in terms of what critical race theory, you know, actually is, again, it's about examining and re-examining laws. And I'll give you an example of, of, of one of the things that kind of reveals itself through critical race theory. So one big you know, issue that that critical theory, I think critical race theory was in, was um, instrumental in sort of, you know, um, bringing to the surface was the complexity of miscegenation of interracial marriage. And so, you know, which was I think, illegal into like the 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, and so under a critical race theory lens, we look at something like um, interracial marriage, and maybe we see this as something that is only a um, a domestic issue 
And so this is preventing people who love one another from being able to sort of pursue their love. And from a critical race theory lens, no, like in addition to this, into the its role as a domestic issue, it's clearly intersecting with um, a, a racial issue as well. And it kind of speaks to the, the way in which the law is being utilized to promote segregation. And so you know, this is kind of the, the you know, it, it's this kind, this is the kind of work that critical race theory um, has sought to do over the course of the fa- past few decades. Uh, again, not be the basis for um, any kind of like mass national curriculum around the way we teach history and civics. Yeah, it's really interesting that many school boards here and elsewhere are releasing these statements saying, we're not teaching critical race theory or we, we won't teach critical race theory. And yet they're they're not teaching critical race theory. So it's like they're, they're putting out these statements about something that isn't really happening at the schools. Um, now, I know just from being in the classroom with students, and this is at a college level, that students are hearing this term more and more, and they're asking me questions. What is critical race theory? Can we learn about, can we have a class on critical race theory? Um, what is data also telling us about just overall, are people wanting to learn about systemic racism in the country, in, in certain areas of the country? I mean, are, is there some data to support that people are really interested in learning more about either critical race theory or just systemic racism? Well, you know, Heather, that's a great question. And the answer to that question is yes. And so I've been fielding um, surveys over the past um, few months. I fielded um, a survey essentially before the beginning of each of the past two academic semesters um, in the fall of 2020, and then again in the spring of 21. And what I'm doing here is I'm collecting data on um, <clears throat> national preferences, especially around um, education and you know um, education politics and policy preferences. And so one of the things that I asked about is what, what I felt like was really at the core of the CRT debate. And this is before it became the CRT debate, which was um, you know teaching um, history from the standpoint of um, acknowledging the truth of slavery and the truth of America's, um, you know, really, really dark uh, past. And so when I frame a survey question around just teaching the truth um, of America's history and uh, around slavery and some of these other issues, I find unanimous support. I found consistently at least 80% of Americans supported this form, this, this style of teaching history to kids. Now, and I even find a slight majority, there's a partisan element, but even Republicans and conservatives, you find slight majorities who are, who are more supportive of, of this. Now, so what I thought was going to be the issue, so I'd build an experiment around this, because what I thought was going to be the issue was um, the idea of this being forced upon them, that um, teachers and schools just taking it upon themselves to teach history in, in this new and true way. And so I embed this experiment to see what happens if they're if if they're presented with the idea of this happening without the parents' consent, and I end up with the null effect. So even mm-hmm. this idea of yeah, and and I I repeat this experiment and get the same results where the idea of if the school were to do it without parent consent, the public would still be really supportive of it. And so I'm seeing this data, and I'm sitting back and I'm thinking, well, why is all this happening? With critical race theory. And then I get a, a message, a, a, a DM message from one of the survey participants who wants to express 
him or herself, their self about the survey and this question in particular about you know the the the, the teaching of history in the classrooms. And this person says, I um, I just wanted to talk a comment about that question that you asked about teaching history. Uh, and I'm I'm more than willing to support like the teaching of history. I just don't support this critical race theory stuff in the 1619 project. And and then it really hit me that, oh, so that's what they're responding to publicly is just this, uh, what's been politicized, which yeah. is the, this name critical race theory and this idea of the 1619 project, as opposed to what's supposed to, what's actually sort of structurally happening uh, within this sort of, this push to reform the way we, we teach history and civics. Yeah, it's, it's framing. Right, like they're the, they're hearing this term and then they're reacting to that term, and they're not perhaps understanding what's under that term, right, or what that term really represents. And I think that's true for many issues. I mean, defund the police is another one where people yeah. hear the term defund and they think, well, that means you're going to stop funding the police department. Well, no, that's not exactly what that means, but it's the framing of that, of that issue. Um, another question that I have for you is about why do you think that this is happening now? I mean, do you, do you see anything that has led to this or that produced this? Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a, it, it's a confounding um, function of um, both the demographic change that we've been seeing happening consistently, um, especially mounting over the past couple of decades. And we see it um, uh, further accentuated through the, the most recent census results. Um, you have um, a declining uh, or shrinking uh, white population. And this is generating levels of, of anxiety. Um, in this recent round of census, they estimate that the white alone population shrank by about eight percentage points. Still a majority, but but smaller. And then if you look at, um, you know, if you start making projections into uh, the next generation and the generation after, um, you see a majority um, um, minority country on the rise, and that's generating again like this this level of anxiety. Um, the the country's changing, and then you look at what was what was happening during the twenty twenty election, and. Um, you know, the politicization of information where um, people were willing, people were, you know, willing to believe or disregard fact based on their ideological lens. And you have elected officials, we had our former president of the United States, who was openly critical of the news media, openly critical of of you know of, of fact or whether it was on the public health side or whether it was across other dimensions and and so then i just you open up this sort of can of worms of questioning um anything kind of related to sort of information you couple that with the idea that the country is changing and then i think that's kind of where we are with critical race theory being so politicized i think it's very much a political response there's no, it's not, there's no coincidence that you see the big, you know, um, critical race theory um, pushback and um, mobilization efforts, honestly, happening in um, more conservative areas. You know, there's no critical race theory debate happening in New York or Los Angeles or Chicago. 
uh, some of the bigger cities, some of the bigger urban cities. It, you know, it's happening in more of your small town USA. And, um, you know, I think this is a response to the demographic change. And I think it's a response to um, kind of a, a new open criticism to fact that was sort of put on the table by former President Trump. For those of you who are just tuning in, this is Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans, and today we are discussing school boards and critical race theory. And we're joined by three guests, Brandy Hurley, who is a 3L law student at the Appalachian School of Law, Jonathan Collins, Assistant Professor of Education, Political Science, and International and Public Affairs at Brown University, and Adam Latz, who is a historian of education at SUNY Binghamton. So Adam, What's happening across the country, especially here in southwestern Virginia, feels a lot like the school culture wars. Do you think that's an accurate assessment? Oh, I, I do. And, and to me, um, the clearest uh, indicator that we are in the same uh, waters that, you know, have, we've been swimming in for, you know, a good solid hundred years now um, is how many times the issues that are brought up are either uh, bundled together in ways that don't make... Um, they make a ton of culture war sense, but they don't make any like uh, any sort of logical sense, you know. So, for example, why is there a anti-mask slash anti-culture uh, critical race theory side? Like, there's no external logical reason for those particular issues to be turned into a, a quote-unquote side. Um, but in this last whatever it's been few months. They certainly have been tightly fused together. And it makes perfect sense. If you read in the papers, you know, these sides evolve, uh, these are the issues evolve and they and they grow and they kind of grow together, you know, like maybe roots of a tree or something like that. So they are connected, of course, but I just mean um, there's no simple, obvious, easily explainable um, logic why these sides would grow this way. And that's been the case for, you know, for a solid hundred years. In, term, in lots of other cases. Um, so some of them seem almost uh, cute. Uh, you know, in the 50s, there was a large push, and this, well, through the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the issue of summer camps became a real hot culture war issue. And for us now, I think happily, that it's dissipated. We don't think of summer camps as a sort of hot spot for culture war issues, but in that period it was, and it got fused together with things that wouldn't necessarily seem to go with it, like certain types of reading instruction. You know, if you're using a whole language compared to phonics, that puts you on one side that was also expected to have a side in the summer camp question. So mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of what we're seeing today is um, the, the pattern, obviously the issues, the words, the actors are all different, um, but the patterns of bundling together seemingly disparate issues um, and having schools be, and school board meetings uh, these days, um, be the sort of um, battleground on which th these uh, issues become contested. That's, that's very familiar for, uh, you know, again, at least from the last hundred years. So why is it that this is happening at school boards versus other places? Well, um, I think there are a lot of reasons. Um, one of the main reasons, in my opinion, uh, and this is, again, uh, from the perspective of the 20th century into today, uh, for one reason is, is schools are sort of a, um, a lag institution. You know, they're, 
the changes in, in science, in, in academics, in, in um, what passes for the norm in um, uh, university contexts, uh, they don't show up in schools for a while. Um, so for example, uh, uh, um, in the critical race theory stuff that people are talking about, like literally that is from the 1970s. And it's a weird example because it's not that K-12 schools are really teaching critical race theory directly, but there's this sort of um, lag uh, between when things happen in, in scholarship or science and then when people uh, feel like they happen, or not just scholarship and science, in the culture. Uh, and, and when people start to feel like they see them as um, part of school K-12. So um, and the other great example is you know, evolutionary science. Evolutionary science became super controversial in the 1920s in K-12 schools, but it certainly wasn't new. I mean, specifically the, the Darwinian um, and the Russell natural selection ideas, those were not at all new. They were 50 years old um, in 1920 but they were perceived by a lot of people as um, becoming part of school life, school curriculum in the 1920s. And this is when you see um, a big controversy over it. And we could do it with other things too. Um, certainly, you know, LGBTQ rights um, and um, you know, I, questions of gender identity are not new uh, right. at all. Uh, however, there's um, an impression, a feeling, a rumor that they are being newly imposed as part of school curriculum. And I think so part of the reason why we see it in schools, uh, th these battles happening in schools are because, um, you know, no, maybe no one cares what goes on in, you know, the sort of biological sciences at the university. Maybe no one really cares what goes on in the historical uh, department offices at the university. But once there's a feeling that this is what our kids are being taught, that um, it tends to be more controversial to more people. And there's a lag there between what, you know, what's, what's controversial in the academy. You know, certainly ideas about um, structural systemic racism now and, and the importance of understanding slavery, white supremacy, genocide as part of U.S. history, at, at foundational parts. Mm -hmm. There's nothing controversial about that. You won't find a conservative academic historian who would raise a murmur of dissent about those ideas academically. But when it comes to what gets taught in K-12, they become, um, you know, however many years, 50 years after those controversies happen in the academy, they happen in schools. Right. So many school boards here, of course, come out to say, we're not teaching critical race theory at all. So this is like a non-issue, but they're just releasing these statements and I, I've gotten the sense that some educators are also trying to shy away from even teaching about race in general or, or policies about race or anything related to African-American history. Where do you think this is going? I mean, do, do you see, like, is this really about the election? Because I've been wondering about that. Do you think that this is kind of sparked by these groups to kind of get people talking about this, coming out to their school boards and then hoping that they'll turn around and vote a certain way? Or is it really about the policies at the school boards? Yeah, well, it's a great question. I, I do think um, 
that they're, they're the, the central underlying question. I, I, when it comes to school board policies, I'm not a big believer that any of the, like, I, of course, there are big conspiracies. Uh, there's money involved. There are organizations that fund groups to try to make it look like they have grassroots representation when they don't. Like, I get that. Um, but I think when it comes to strategies at the school board level, national strategies at the school board level, I mean, there really are some uh, groups like uh, the Manhattan Institute and, and groups that I'm a part of, uh, the National Education Association. They do have strategies and that they're trying to implement through local school boards. So that, those exist. Uh, but I think when it comes to uh, the, the fervor and the heat and the anger and the yelling and the, the, you know, the fists in the face that we're seeing these days at school boards, I think most of that um, is, is not part of a specific scheme or, or strategy or plan. Uh, and, it, and it's also usually about um, whatever people say it's about. You know, like um, if someone says they're mad about what their kid is being taught in history class, uh, I think it's important to take at face value that that's in their, most likely in their perception, that's really what they're mad about. Mm -hmm. uh, even if from our perception uh, perspective, it's like, well, doesn't make sense to be mad that your kid's being taught critical race theory when your child is not being taught critical race theory. So what are you really angry about? And that's a different question. Um, I think, and again, from the historical perspective, the, the lamentable position of um, educational conservatives, people who fought for um, a sort of a, a raft of more conservative ideas about what should go on in schools, you know, some traditional patriotism, um, uh, traditional Christian values, especially Protestant values, uh, even traditional classroom organization, you know, the teacher talks, the student listens. So for a hundred years, folks who um, have been active for more conservative schools, either at the local or the national level, uh, they have been fighting a rear guard action. They've been fighting a battle that ended a while ago. Um, so for example, in the 1920s, fighting against evolutionary science was already a fight against someone, a, a foe that had already won. Uh, you know, the William Jennings Bryan in 1925 stormed into Dayton, Tennessee at the Scopes Monkey Trial. And he knew, he was a smart guy. He knew he had lost science. Uh, in, his, in his papers at the Library of Congress, you can, <laughs> you can almost smell his desperation because he was writing in the, year, in the, in the months uh, coming up to that asking, he knew everybody, he was, he, he was well-connected. He asked all the scientists he could think of to come testify that evolutionary science was bad science and nobody would do it. One person wanted to do it, but that one person who was um, a professor at Johns Hopkins was actually um, uh, believed that evolutionary science was right, just not for humans. So mm -hmm. I think uh, in the big picture and from a historical perspective, especially, I do think that the the anger of some of these educational conservatives uh, can be um, attributed to the, the fact that the battles that they're fighting are already lost. Um, though, so for example, if you're fighting against critical race theory, I think part of what you're fighting against is the idea that individual uh, decisions are not the sum total of what racism means. Uh, you know, like, don't teach my child about systemic racism. 
It's like, well, that battle has already been fought and lost by conservatives. You know, the understanding of what racism is as a structural um, set of, you know, not just policies, but attitudes, like those aren't real fights anymore uh, in the academy. They're over. So I think some of the anger is fueled by this resentment (laughs) at knowing that the the big picture battles in places like universities and, and policy making institutions, they're lost. And I do think that there's some element of uh, the, uh, the past president, uh, Trump, tapped into that feeling of resentment as part of his sort of platform. And I think we're feeling that sort of resentment in, these, in this current uh, battle. Uh, and, if, and I don't mean to say that every parent um, goes in there thinking, well, my battle is lost, but I'll be angry. You know, I don't think that they think that way. I think a lot of parents really think that what they read on Facebook about what their kid is being taught, I think they really think that that's bad for their kid and they really want to stop it immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not what their kid is being taught. And I think they're, they're not acting, um, you know, they're acting uh, driven by these resentments and this feeling of a loss of control that they lost a while ago. But I do think that their immediate feelings are also, uh, you know, certainly usually sincere and, you know, um, more about the immediate goal that they're saying than anything else. Well, thank you all again for being a guest today on Red, White, and Confused. And thank you listeners for tuning in. Um, If you missed any piece of this program, you can listen to it again at www.wehcfm.com.